Excellent. Marvellous, marvellous, marvellous. Well done. Good job. Well, it feels like a, a real feast, doesn't it, some weeks? You get so much input but from the front that um, you do wonder whether you can remember it all. You're going to get more input now. So um, be thinking, be reflecting, be, be aware, be ready, be concentrating. Because what I want to talk about today is something that we've looked at before. But I want to look at today a way of understanding the totality of your life from the point of view of the Scriptures Disciples of Jesus obviously are defined by the life of Jesus. And the Bible calls Jesus the living word. And as the living word, he is the key to us interpreting the written word. And we can see from the way that Jesus trained and taught his first disciples that the Bible is the most important resource that we have available as disciples. And so taking the Bible as a whole and understanding the nature, the scope, the breadth of the Bible as a whole, and knowing how to carry that with us and knowing how to apply that to the conditions of our life and to the situations and circumstances that we face individually, that we face as a family, and that, as, that, that we face as a nation, is of ultimate importance and value. So today, that's what we're going to go after. And the way that we're going to do it is to continue with our passage in Luke chapter 15. And we're going to look at two particular stories, stories that always follow one another in the first three Gospels of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have both of these stories, and they always occur together. And so there's something important about them being placed together in the way that we understand what it is that Jesus is trying to teach his first disciples. So let's look at that first story. We're in Luke chapter 15, and we're beginning to read from verse 15. Luke 18, verse 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, we can get a little bit dewy-eyed about these kinds of passages. We can become a little bit sentimental and we can all start talking about how sweet children are. And, you know, I understand that. That's fine. But that's not what it is that Jesus is talking about here. Children are sweet and they're delightful and they're very trusting and um, they're very open to adventure and they're, they're very willing to try new things. And there's all kinds of things that characterize, that characterize a child that we can identify with and learn to apply to our lives to our benefit. Absolutely. 
But what Jesus is saying is simply this, that unless your sense of identity is that of a child, you cannot receive the things that the king has for you. In other words, if you want what the king has available, you need to understand that the king is your father. The king has all kinds of things for you to receive and embrace. But the king can never be approached. The king can never be fully understood. And certainly, the resources that the king has available can never be embraced unless we approach the king as his child. And this brings us back to last week. Because you'll remember last week we were looking at the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple. And, um, and we said that superiority, which is what the, the, whole, the whole thing was about, it'll come up eventually, superiority is something that is absolutely no-go for a follower of Jesus. Superiority based upon an understanding that you think you're better than someone else or superiority that is based upon the secret belief that you think you're inferior to other people and so have to present a superior image so as to as it were, defend the sense of inferiority within, either kinds of superiority are not anything that a follower of Jesus can ever choose as their behavior. And so whatever you think about the social conditions that we're facing, whatever you think about the the kinds of debates that sadly have politicized basic human realities like justice and peace and unity between human beings, the things that have not only been politicized but weaponized, whatever you, whatever you think about all of that, the realities of justice, the realities of peace and the realities of unity between sisters and brothers are founded on a basic understanding that the Bible unequivocally says that we are equal and there is no one who is superior and there is no one who is inferior. And the way that you approach that understanding is to understand that your identity is the key to dealing with superiority and inferiority. Because if your identity is firmly founded in the biblical revelation that you are a child of God, the person next to you is your equal. Because they're a child of God either because they've been found as a child of God or they're lost as a child of God. But one way or another, they're still a child of God. 
They may not know they're a child of God. They may function as if they've lost all connection to that sense of identity. But when the father finds them and welcomes them home and brings them back to himself because of the saving work of Jesus that removes the alienation, that removes the distance, that removes the sin barrier that prevents those people from knowing him as father, everyone will understand that they're a child. Now, that fundamental, that fundamental revelation is a revelation that will transform our life and our society if we simply live by it. But greater folks than, than, than I have attempted to apply that principle and it seems as though so often it's resisted. Well, today we have, I believe, in this next passage, a way of kind of sneaking up on the problems that our inferiority and superiority have created and give us a way to overcome the obstacles. Because very often, if we get our minds right, we get our behavior right. And if we get our behavior right, very often things around us begin to change. Certainly, that would be the testimony of the people of God down through the centuries. So Jesus begins by saying, Jesus begins by saying, you need to come into the presence of the living God who is your king in the understanding and with the awareness that you are a child of that God who you address as king. And of course, it changes everything. So coming as a child is foundational. And that foundation is such that we could put it here on our board under this word relationship. And we could create a little axis that gives us a sense of where we are in terms of our relationship to God and perhaps even our relationship to other people. Maybe, maybe it's high or low. Some people said last week that I was definitely beginning to tend towards the kind of doctor in my writing, you know, writing the prescription. I think I can read that. I don't know whether anybody else in the building can, but high or low relationship. I mean, you know, most of us can make a, make a kind of an assessment. A little bit later on, we'll look at our five capitals and we'll assess where we are. Most of us are capable of doing that. So we, we think about it. We say, okay, Lord, I think that my relationship with you is getting better right now. And so I think it may not be the highest it'll ever be, but, but it's kind of going in this direction. Or maybe you've had a hard week and things have been difficult and, you know, you've been conscious of your brokenness and your weakness, as I am uh, very often. And, and maybe you think, well, I don't know, maybe I'm still in relationship with you, Lord, because it depends on you and not on me. And it depends upon the saving work of Jesus as to whether I have a relationship, but, but I feel a little bit distant from you right now. But whichever way 
There is a relationship. Now, this next passage helps us to understand the other important category that we need to place in our life alongside relationship because relationships will get you a long way, but they won't get you to the destination. Let's read on. I'll have a little drink. Cheers. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard him say this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard him say this said, then who can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with God is, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, Lord, we have left all to follow you. He said, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. We all know the story, the story of the rich, young ruler. It's positioned immediately after the story of Jesus welcoming the children to himself. What is it that the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit who saw fit to see that the Scriptures were written, what is it that the Holy Spirit wants us to understand about the ordering of these stories? There are two things that you need. You need a relationship, and you need a responsibility. And that responsibility is just as important. As your relationship. Now, which comes first? Obviously, the relationship. But on the basis of your relationship, there is a responsibility that is called forth from you. This is the testimony of Scripture from the very first page to the very last. It is, it is couched in theological terms as covenant and kingdom. Covenant means coming as one. Kingdom means taking responsibility to represent the king. Jesus wants this young ruler to understand that his life is in many ways a picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The followers of Jesus are to do the things that Jesus did. Jesus, the King of Heaven, does what? Gives up all of his riches 
and chooses to come among us as one who is poor. Paul said, he is our example because he who was rich became poor for our sake so that out of his poverty we might become rich. Jesus wants this young young man to be his disciple and he wants to embrace the call of discipleship to be something that is reflective of the life of Jesus himself. You are called to be a child of God and you are called to rule on his behalf. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells us at the very beginning of the story that that was our job, and it tells us that that's our destiny at the end of the story. There's no question, there is no argument. This is not some kind of speculation by Mike Breen. This is what the Bible says. God creates human beings, and this is what he says. Two things. Be fruitful, which means reproduce, in every way imaginable, not just children, be fruitful and rule. That's what he says. Now, everything that God said to us still rings in the heart of every person. That's why there is a desire in you to be successful. That's why there's a desire in you to nurture and to care for and to produce children. That's why there's a desire in you to see something grow in your life. That's why there's a desire in you to be in charge of something. Now, that has been subverted by the enemy and that desire to be in charge of someone often puts us in this position of superiority or inferiority. But we rule not out of superiority but out of revelation. And what is the revelation? That the children of God are the representatives of God. Is this on? Is everybody okay? You're not kind of falling asleep or anything, are you? Okay. I sometimes wonder whether I'm preaching in a library. Do you get it? You're supposed to represent God. You're supposed to rule. You're supposed to be in charge. You're supposed to be the ones that when he's looking at the world and says, man, America looks a real mess right now. Well, it's okay. Because I've got my kids there. Don't look at what presidents and politicians are supposed to do. Don't don't ask that question. Don't think, first of all, what's going to happen in the general election. Don't, Don't think that way. Because all of our past history tells us, all of our past history tells us, that's a very strange noise, that, isn't it? It must be an important part of the sermon. All... All of our past history tells us that that may not change the world, that general election. It may not. 
But what about if God, choosing to change a nation, was able to lean on his children and trust them to represent him? Trust them to rule on his behalf. What would that look like? You see, for that to happen, you and I need to start radically embracing what the Bible says about us. And it says this, unequivocally, there is no question about this, and honestly, I don't know there's anybody who can read the Bible, and anybody who I know who does read the Bible, who doesn't come to the same conclusion. We're supposed to be the children of God, and being the children of God means that we're the children of the King of Heaven, and the King of Heaven has chosen to extend His kingship to us and through us. It's called His kingdom. And His kingdom is supposed to be extended through you and through me. That means that we are the representatives of God. We are the extension of his rule. We are the children who bear his name and function in the way that he's called us to function with hearts and attitudes that are shaped like that of Jesus. A couple of chapters on from where we are now, Jesus will make it unequivocally clear. Just turn very quickly to Luke 22 and verse 29. This is just to make sure that some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, but you know, I don't know. It says this. Jesus has just been talking to the guys about leadership and, and how they're not to ape or emulate the leadership patterns of the world. And then he says in verse 29, And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me. Just pause for a minute. Just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. Anybody prepare to argue with me now? Anybody prepared to argue with me? It's impossible, isn't it? I confer on you a kingdom. Okay. Well, some of you may know Greek, so have a go at this. The word there is diatheke, the word to confer. The word diatheke is a word that is used in the contractual exchange of a king making a covenant with a people so that he raises them to the position of equality so that they can represent him and his kingship. How about that for size? That's what the word means. There's no question God wants you to rule. Actually, there's no question that one day you are. Just like in Narnia. That's, that's why he wrote it. Good old C.S. Lewis, that's why he wrote it. You're supposed to wear a crown. You're supposed to be in charge of things. You're supposed to be, as a member of the royal family of heaven, you're supposed to be the rulers of the universe. Isn't that fun? And here's the thing. 
The eschatological reality means it has been inaugurated now and will be consummated then. But we don't wait for it to be revealed one day and hope that someday it might happen because the someday is this day. And there is no other day because today is the day of salvation. And as soon as you're saved, you're a child of God. And as soon as you're a child of God, you're the representative of the king. Now, if this doesn't change everything, it's because you've not understood. And if you've not understood, it must be my fault. So I'm desperate for you to understand. Our life is defined by relationship and responsibility. Let's try it from another tack, just for a few minutes. Let's start with responsibility for a minute. Because maybe this will help us with some of the the things that we've been thinking about privately and, uh, and publicly recently. So what's the big responsibility for us as disciples? Well, there, there really isn't, again, much debate about that if you read the story just with an open-hearted, generous attitude. You get to the end of the story and Jesus says, okay, I want you to go and do all of the things that I've been doing. You get to the end of the first gospel, Matthew, uh, Matthew 28, verse 18, and Jesus says this. He says, all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. That means that the kingdom that had been conferred upon him had now become realized in his life and he was speaking as the king. Yeah? All authority. How much authority? All. So there's no portion of authority that he doesn't have. That means he's in charge of everything. That means he's the king of the universe. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, I say to you, go. He's sending out his emissaries. He's sending out his representatives. Go and make disciples. And baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them everything I've taught you to do. That's the responsibility. Those are the last words of Jesus. The last words of Jesus are the ones that he's been waiting to say all the way through the story. He doesn't say anything else after it. This is the responsibility. So the responsibility is defined by the great commission, the commission that he gives to his representatives. And it's a great commission, a commission to the whole world. Go to all the world, to every ethnic group, to every culture, to every person and make disciples. Is it possible to fulfill the great commission without the great commandment? In the same book, Matthew's Gospel, the Great Commission 
follows several chapters after the great commandment. Someone says to Jesus, what's the greatest of the commandments? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment. What does the great commandment do? The great commandment tells us what the relationship is that supports the responsibility. So yes, we have a responsibility to change the world, to make disciples of Jesus. But the only way we can do that is to live in the great commandment, to live in the relationship that means that we have a loving relationship with God, receiving his love, giving to him the love that he puts in our heart and loving others all the time as an expression of our love for him. We love our God, we love our neighbor, we love ourselves and in that relationship, we have the capacity to fulfill the responsibility. If we want reconciliation in our world, it would have to be living in understanding that a relationship is expressed as a responsibility. Very often, this is the way it works. We take on the responsibility without the relationship and we look for revolution. Because revolution is trying to take responsibility without, without the relationship. Sometimes, sometimes we just do the relationship and you know, we don't really buy into the responsibility. And so it's just abstract thoughts. It's called reverie. Or maybe, maybe we don't do anything and we just retreat from reality. I was talking to Reggie Screen, who's a dear friend of mine, African-American leader in a, in a white denomination. Many of you have met him on, online. And uh, we, were, we were talking about it, and he, he said, you know, this reverie thing, it's, it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like we just have this strap line, all you need is love. <laughs> all you need is love, la, 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 la. All you need is love, la, 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 la. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. Or you could say, you say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. You've got to say it with a Liverpudlian accent. Or maybe... Well, maybe you say, ah, when I find myself times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Let it be, let it be. Let it be, let it be. 
speaking words of wisdom, let it be. So it could be that. And depending on which era of that particular group that no one's ever heard of, it could be, I want to hold your hand. Or it could be, come together right now over me. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. If I'm going to be a discipling disciple, every person I encounter is a person that I'm called to love. And if I'm called to love them, I'm called to understand them. And if I'm called to understand them, I'm called to honor what it is that they are, who it is that they are. Here's something that I've noticed that white people can do that is of enormous value to our black brothers and sisters. Being a white evangelical with European heritage, I am unassailably, incontrovertibly individualistic. And so if something happens to you, I might kind of feel sympathy for you, but it didn't happen to me. But whenever I meet my black sisters and brothers, I meet people who are indisputably, incontrovertibly collectivist in their understanding of the world. And so if something happens to one of the number of people that inhabit their world, it happens to them. And so when a man is murdered on the street and violence is perpetrated, my black brothers and sisters feel it as if it's a member of their family. And as a white person, I find that difficult to understand. But you see, I want to take responsibility for being a disciple of Jesus. And I want to build a relationship either with another disciple so that we can walk together and change the world. Or find a way to disciple that sister or brother so that they can join me in that desire that Jesus has placed in my heart. And the only way I can do that is to understand them, is to connect with them, to build a relationship. And you know what? I've found that the simplest way for me to connect is simply to say, how are you feeling? I'm so sorry for the things that have been happening. I'm so sorry. It's a terrible thing. And that changes everything right there.
It gives me a relationship right there. It gives me an opportunity right there. Are you, is anybody hearing me here? We're disciples of Jesus, people. Disciples of Jesus have a responsibility. And the responsibility is not an insignificant one. It's to change the world. You can't change the world through revolution. Ask Mao Zedong. Ask Lenin. Ask Marx. Ask anybody who's had a revolution. You can't change the world through revolution. You can't change the world through retreat. The world will change you. You can't change the world through the reverie of abstract thinking, just hoping that everybody will somehow be able to put their flower necklace together and live in peace. It ain't going to happen. The only way that we change the world is that someone somewhere takes responsibility for changing the things that need to be changed in relationship with other people who believe in the same thing. That's how you change the world. And the reason I know it is because that's the way that Jesus built it. Now hear me clearly. Guilt, fear and shame will never be the prompt that anyone needs to change their behavior. It won't do it. Godly sorrow brings repentance, but it won't change your behavior long term. The only thing that will change your behavior long term is the realization of your identity in God, that you are a child of the living God. And that as a child of the living God, you have a responsibility to represent him every day. And he sent his spirit so that in the midst of your difficulty, the spirit within you cries, Abba, Father. And when you don't know how to pray, the spirit prays within you with with groans too deep for words. God has sent his spirit so that all of the things that are impossible to us are possible with him. Did you hear Jesus say that? What is impossible for man is possible for God and that God lives in you. These things are not unassailable, impossible things. These are things that are impossible for men. They're not impossible for God. God can do what he wants to do in changing the world. He can do it. He's done it in your heart. Look how different you are now. Do you remember what you used to be like? Well, your spouse does. Ask them. (laughs) God can do it. And if he can do it in a mustard seed of one heart... He could maybe make that mustard seed grow to become a mighty tree in which there's shade for all of the birds of the air. And how does it happen? Through the relationship that you have with God becoming the means by which you embrace the responsibility of representing him. There it is. That's it. I don't need to preach another thing here at Apex. That's it. 
It's truly, there isn't anything else to say except that it's, you know, hard. <laughs> really difficult to do every day. And we're probably going to need all of our help and everybody's best intentions to be able to make progress. I'm prepared to make that commitment. Are you? One person, praise God. <laughs> let's, just, um, let's just stop for a minute. Gave you the card with the five capitals on. In a moment, the band are going to come up. That's band, that's a secret message that we agreed on earlier. Um, so take the card out and have a look at it. There's five capitals on there. The Lord has given you at least five capitals, and if you combine those capitals, then you start to get all of the other capitals that, that function. These are the things that Jesus talked about all the time. Spiritual capital, relational capital. intellectual capital, physical capital, financial capital. Two questions to ask yourself. As you've been listening to the Lord in the worship and the word, is my capital growing or diminishing in the spiritual, relational, intellectual, physical, and financial? Is it growing? And whether it's growing or not, am I investing what God has given me for the purposes of his kingdom. Jesus says this, invest all of it. Invest all of it. That's what he was saying to the rich young ruler, invest all of it. Nobody who invests what I've given them will ever live in a life without a return on that investment in this age and in the age to come. That's what Jesus just said. Nobody who invests, will ever find themselves in a place where that return on investment is not greater than what they put in. So what is God saying to you? How should you invest? Let's just have a few moments just to look at that.